Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the aquarium. I'm Jerry Schubel, president of the aquarium, and it's great to see all of you here this evening. For those of you in the theater, please turn your cell phones off or put them on vibrate and try to refrain from texting for the next hour. I also want to welcome those who are watching online. And I want to acknowledge our lecture sponsors, Gazette Newspapers and the Marriott Courtyard that make this lecture series possible. You see on the screen that our topic for tonight is 20 years of achievements in husbandry and conservation. And there's no better person in the aquarium to talk about this than Dr. Sandy Troutwine. She's been in this institution since January of 1997. So that was the year before we opened. We opened in June of 1998. And this lecture is part of our 20th anniversary celebration. Sandy got her bachelor's degree from Towson State University in Maryland, her master's degree from the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina with an emphasis on coral, and she got her PhD from UCLA uh, in marine biology in 2013. There's nobody who's been involved as intimately as Sandy over the history of this institution in taking care of the animals and working on our animal displays and preparing exhibits. And um, she and her staff are responsible for what have been characterized as some of the best live animal exhibits in the entire country and probably in the world. So Sandy, come up and give us a summary of some of our major accomplishments. Thank you, Jerry, and thanks everyone for being here tonight. I really appreciate your participation. And I am really excited about talking about our 20 years of achievements here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. And as I sat down to write this presentation, two things occurred to me. Number one, it was, it's nearly impossible to cover 20 years of achievements in just a 45-minute lecture. And, but I'll do my best tonight to cover the highlights. And number two, I must be really old because 20 years really flew by quickly. Um, but uh, as you know, as Jerry had mentioned, I have the honor and the privilege of serving the aquarium for the past 20 years. And I've been part of that original grand opening team. And it's really been an exciting journey since those original days. And I'm excited to share some of that history with you tonight. So to start, I'd like to give you a little bit of history about Long Beach and how the aquarium started. And for the six of you that attended my uh, lecture in, in the spring, this spring, you'll notice some repeat slides. <laughs> um, but I thought it was important to share them with you. Starting with this one. This one I like a lot because it reminds me of how far we've come. You'll see the aquarium is just a uh, construction site back in early 1997. And you'll also notice that we were originally called the Long Beach Aquarium of the Pacific. And I think that's an important distinction to make because we've really come a long way from being a very local, regional aquarium to now one that reaches across the globe. And so our impact and our achievements will be reviewed tonight. So let's start with Long Beach. Long Beach was actually known as the West Coast's Coney Island. And back in the 1900s, uh, we were a popular tourist destination. With its unique rainbow pier, this horseshoe-shaped rainbow pier, and our beautiful surfable waves here, tourists and locals came from all around to visit Long Beach. You could actually drive out on this pier, and in fact, the pier acted as a breakwater for the Long Beach Municipal Auditorium. So it was a very popular tourist destination. People came to ride the unique Cyclone Racer, a two-track wooden roller coaster, sort of state-of-the-art in the day, and we were, we were doing great. Unfortunately, in the mid-1970s, we began to feel the pressure from surrounding amusement parks like Knott's Berry Farm and Disneyland. And so that really took away some of the tourist industry that we depended on. To make matters worse, 
the Long Beach Naval Station and Shipyard closed in the early 1990s, and with it went thousands of jobs. And this really hit Long Beach pretty hard. And so it was tough economic times for Long Beach, but um, the city managers got together and decided to come up with a new Queensway Bay development project. And the idea of the project was to develop the entire shoreline area around Long Beach um, where the original pike and the whole amusement section used to be. And you can see this is the original construction site for the Long Beach Aquarium. And uh, I think what I see is sort of the outline here of the Blue Cavern exhibit. And you can see some construction trailers around the perimeter. And this is where we, as the original team, worked from in creating the new exhibits. And so with this new revitalization project and the Long Beach Aquarium of the Pacific as the anchor and cornerstone for economic recovery, we started construction. And the Aquarium of the Pacific began construction in 1996. And you can see some of these great old photos. I'm sorry for the graininess of the photos, but this was back before digital cameras. So all of these have been scanned. Um, but we did know that we were going to focus on aquarium uh, of the Pacific Ocean animals. And we knew that we had three primary galleries, the Northern Pacific, the Southern California Gallery, and the Tropical Pacific. We had a rough idea of the animals that we were going to display in our approximately 40 themed exhibits, but we didn't have much, many specifics. So my task as a new curator for the Aquarium of the Pacific was to try to fill out those species lists and to try, try to help create the exhibit themes that we were shooting for. And so for that, we needed a team. And we began looking for local talent as far as scientists and educators and even facilities and people that could do plumbing for our life support systems. And we assembled a husbandry and life support team. This was our original team. And if I can step out here, I'll show you some of the folks that you may or may not remember. Here is Perry Hampton in the shades up there. He was our former vice president of husbandry, and it was then hired as our curator of the Southern California Gallery. And here is Mark Ryan, who was our uh, Northern Pacific Gallery curator. And then myself, I look like a teenager here, <laughs> as the Tropical Pacific Gallery. And we were under the leadership of Dr. Ken Yates, who was our VP of husbandry back then. And so we worked with the construction crew, and um, we assembled teams of divers to help us create the new aquarium. And we also, um, I, should, I need to mention, of course, our beloved Topaz the cat, who helped us start our construction and adopted us from the local area. He was a local stray that ended up in our trailer and then eventually moved to the building for a short time. Actually, a long time. <laughs> Um, so we needed to procure 10,000 animals to open the aquarium. And that was a major challenge for us and uh, one of our biggest tasks. So how did we do that? Well, we relied on several resources. Number one, our own divers helped to collect the local SoCal animals. We also hired professional collectors to get the Northern Pacific animals. Well, for the Tropical Pacific collection, we really relied on the fact that Los Angeles is a major port of entry for the tropical fish trade. And so there are these huge uh, wholesalers or warehouses full of tropical fish. And instead of us having to go across the ocean to procure our animals for those exhibits, we simply went shopping. And it was wonderful. <laughs> but um, it, we wanted, our main goal was to get all of our animals from sustainable resources and reduce the demands on the wild populations. And so with that in mind, we also uh, received coral fragments from hobbyists. Local hobbyists had heard about the great new aquarium that was being built and actually contacted us about the fact that they had been growing corals and they had tropical fish in their exhibits. So they donated a lot of the animals to us in the beginning and still continue to do so today. 
We also, um, fish, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife had heard about our new aquarium and said, hey, we sometimes get coral confiscations where maybe the permits aren't quite right and we need to find a home for corals. Would you be willing to accept them? And we were like, of course, we will. So with all of these resources in mind, we began to gather the animals. But then the question was, where do we hold them? And that's where, you know, where the building is under construction. The exhibits are not quite ready yet. But we need to begin getting the animals and quarantining them and making sure that they're conditioned and prepared for their life at the Aquarium of the Pacific. So we rented some space. And we, uh, oh, let me save that for later. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen now. <laughs> Wrong button, but let me uh, go back here. Southern California Marine Institute was one of our original homes. We rented space from them. They're right here in Terminal Island, so it was a 20-minute drive for us to hold our animals there and then bring them back to the aquarium. But we also rented a big warehouse, a, a former pet wholesaler, tropical fish wholesaler, that had moved to the LAX area. And they, they knew that we were looking for holding space. So they said, well, why don't you come and use this space? You can rent it from us. And it's all set up and ready to go for tropical fish. So we took advantage of that. Well, to explain this, little did we know that it was kind of a sketchy area. And we walked in one day to find chalk lines out in front of our facility. So we couldn't wait for the aquarium to get open. <laughs> so we began working with the contractors to create natural habitats for our animals. That was very important for us. That was a big theme. And we wanted to make sure that everything looked as naturalistic as possible. And so you can see some of the original artificial corals in Tropical Reef. They're based off of actual coral models. And the same thing with Coral Lagoon and, of course, our life-size blue whale model, which is indeed 90 feet long and came in three different sections and was assembled in the Great Hall. We actually had to ship it through the front entrance before the windows and the doors were installed just to get it into the building. So it was quite a big process. And then we opened. We had all of the animals in place. We had the exhibits filled. We worked with the contractors to time our arrival of the animals with the opening of the exhibits. And then the facility opened in, on June 20th, 1998. And wow, what a great response. That first year, we had over 2 million guests. And it was incredible. We were so popular and so delighted, but it was almost too much of a good thing, right? Imagine the Aquarium of the Pacific as it sits today without Shark Lagoon or Lorikeet Forest or any of the back area that now accommodates guests. So we had two million people in probably two-thirds of the space that we have now. And that affected us somewhat. But we pulled th pushed through and armed with our mission to instill a sense of wonder, respect, and stewardship for the Pacific Ocean, its inhabitants, and ecosystem, we set out to connecting with the public. And even back then, we had dedicated divers that came in, even before we opened, to help us clean and help us feed and give presentations, just as they do today. And we, were, we began connecting with the guests through interaction and interpretation. So when we first started, we were largely a facility, not only for entertainment, in, for a, a, a tourist attraction, but a, a real educational facility. Now we're showing actual aquarium habitats that simulate the natural habitats in the wild. But we realized that our capacity was an issue. So we began developing the back space of the Aquarium of the Pacific, what was formerly known as Explorer's Cove. Some of you may remember Explorer's Cove. And you also may remember our ankle-busting whale skeleton. It was a little playground, a child's area that was a little too tall. So we decided to, in that space, 
build lorikeet forests, which you can see this photo must have been taken back in around 2000 or so, when lorikeet forest was still under construction, as well as this back picnic area that we had. You'll recognize the Pier Point Landing uh, parking lot. It's right in this space where the hospital, the Mac Hospital, is now. And uh, this is where we ended up building our new Shark Lagoon and Lorikeet Forest. And that really helped us provide the capacity that we needed for the, the millions of guests that were visiting the aquarium. And we recognized early on that we did touch experiences very well. And people really got an emotional connection to the animals that we were displaying through touch. In fact, each of our primary galleries had a touch exhibit. So not just the uh, Northern Pacific, as we had today, but we also had one in the Southern California Gallery, as well as the Tropical Pacific Gallery. And then, of course, we were the, the first aquarium to have such a large-scale shark touch experience at Shark Lagoon. And this became very popular and a very powerful tool for us early on. So this was a first for the aquarium. And then in 2000, we hit another major milestone, which was our AZA accreditation. Now, AZA simply means the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And AZA is a nonprofit organization that sets very high standards for zoos and aquariums across the country. And through an accreditation process, if you pass the standards that they set through a very extensive and intensive inspection process, you can receive this prestigious accreditation. So we received our first accreditation in 2000, and every five years we become re-accredited. And uh, we have done so, and our next one is coming up in 2020. So, this is a very prestigious thing for us, and it allowed us to go to really to the next level of zoos and aquariums. Now we were connected with the highest standard zoos and aquariums throughout the country, and this was very important to our mission. Around that same time, our inaugural president, Mr. Warren Iliff, stepped down and retired, and in his place came Dr. Jerry Schubel. And we began a new chapter, because now we were doing more than just showing pretty fish in exhibits and connecting to the public through touch and this emotional connection. But with Jerry's passion for conservation and research, we were telling stories about those animals. And that made a big difference in what we did and the exhibits that we had. So now we were talking about the important issues like climate change ocean acidification, rising sea level, and all of these wonderful stories that we needed to tell the public through our beautiful displays and our animals. And with Jerry's connections came lots of other wonderful opportunities for us. We were able to make partnerships with folks like Sylvia Earle and NOAA and local universities like UCSB and our Cal State Long Beach. This is tricky. Okay, there we go. So now we were reaching out to these governmental and university facilities and, and connecting with them and making partnerships with them. And again, this influenced our direction and our path. And meanwhile, we are also making connections within our own husbandry department. So still today, and even in the past, we've always connected with our local partners, the Monterey Bay Aquarium, the Cabrillo Aquarium, the Birch Aquarium. We do lots of trading, lots of uh, partnerships, and great, great things with these facilities. And we still rely on these facilities today. And we began by learning what they did that was successful and more importantly, what they did that wasn't so successful, so that we wouldn't repeat the same mistakes. And it wasn't just aquariums that we were learning from, but it was also from local hatcheries, local aquaculture facilities, and it was all in an effort to, again, become 
sustainable, not only in our collections, but even in the seafood that we feed our animals, so that we could become as green as possible. And back in 2001, we hit another milestone, which was the, that we were the first to become the only aquarium to breed weedy sea dragons. And this is a very rare species that's found off the, the coast of southern, California, uh, southern Australia. And they're very difficult to keep. And we were very proud of the fact that we were able to maintain this very rare species. But more importantly, we were able to culture them and to raise the young. And so much so that we won a very prestigious AZA Conservation Award back in 2002 known as the Bean Award. And this, for me, was a turning point as well, because then we realized that we could begin culturing our own species and providing it not only to our own exhibits, but providing the juveniles to all of the other aquariums, where we could provide a sustainable resource for them as well. And this, again, is all in the goal of reducing pressure on wild populations. This was a first for the Aquarium of the Pacific. And then, of course, we have Charlie, who's been with us since the beginning. Charlie is not only the oldest aquarium in any public aquarium setting, but he was the first otter to be successfully trained to voluntarily give blood. Now, that's a big deal because you, it's very stressful to try to get blood from an animal that doesn't want to give it to you. But if you can train it to say, here you go, just like we would sit down in a doctor's chair and say, okay, take a blood sample. Having an animal, a sea otter trained to do this is a significant milestone. And this was a big deal and a first. And those training methods are all due to our assistant curator, Rob Mortensen, who has also been with us since the beginning. And it was through his expertise and training that we were able to make these major accomplishments. Again, another first for the Aquarium of the Pacific. We also began to learn what our strengths and skills were. Not only were we good at culturing sea dragons and seahorses, but now we were turning into jellies. And you'll notice a very young Nate Jaros up here in the corner. He had come to us from Omaha, Nebraska, and had a passion for jellies. And when we set him loose on our jelly collection, he did amazing things to it. And we really owe all of our culture and our diversity of our jelly collection today to Nate and his team. And they have done a wonderful job in putting us really at the top of the list as far as jelly collections go throughout the country. And now we are culturing and providing jellies to other institutions. Again, all going back to that goal of being sustainable. And in fact, we really rely on innovation and creativity from our staff to help carry ideas forward. And Nate is an innovator, and he came up with this wonderful idea um, we decided to try doing a moon jelly touch tank, if you remember back in our uh, changing exhibit gallery. And uh, remember, the power of touch, we knew the importance of that. And when we began to see lines out the door and into the Great Hall from the popularity of this, we decided to expand the idea and grow it even more. And through innovation and creativity, we came up with a design for the, I think, the largest, most complex and unique moon jelly touch experience that is certainly throughout the country, but possibly in the world. And it has been a huge success. And again, it's thanks to the creativity and innovation of our staff and empowering them to produce these wonderful ideas. Another first for the Aquarium of the Pacific. We also learned that we were good at keeping abalone. And when the uh, NOAA, the National Marine Fisheries section of NOAA, uh, was involved with white abalone species recovery, this be all began back in 2007, 
they reached out to the Aquarium of the Pacific and they said, hey, you know, the white abalone has been the first uh, invertebrate to be listed on the Endangered Species Act, and we want to try to increase their numbers. They were virtually over-harvested uh, back in the 1900s to the point where there are no more, I mean, there, there are some adults left in the wild, but they're considered reproductively extinct because males and females are so far apart from one another that if and when they do spawn, their eggs and sperm can never meet. So they can never reproduce enough to replace the original populations. So Noah approached us and asked us if we wanted to become involved with white abalone spawning efforts. And we, of course, accepted the challenge. And ever since 2008, I believe, or 2009, we have been involved with this very important project. Based on other uh, aquaculture facilities, again, learning from others, we developed our own uh, aquaculture, abalone culture facility here at the aquarium with the support of NOAA and their funding. And every year since we've been involved in the project, we have been able to help produce young abalone like this one here that's just newly settled and help restore those populations at least in a, a captive setting, I would say. Um, we are still working towards having enough abalone to outplant them in the wild. But actually, the Aquarium of the Pacific has contributed about a third of the uh, total number of white abalone that have been produced from this program. So today, in, again, an, a, an aquarium setting, we have about 30,000 that have been produced as part of this important project. And 10,000, approximately, of them have been produced here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. So we've really been able to contribute to this very important project. And it doesn't stop there. I mean, look at these cute little guys, right? We want to share this with our, our guests and get them jazzed about it. So the aquarium, uh, or NOAA, actually approached us about taking that to the next level. Not only now are we culturing and spawning white abalone, but we're raising them and helping NOAA test abalone recruitment modules. So the next step is protecting the abalone once they go into the wild. Once you raise them and you're getting ready to recover wild populations, you don't just take them out in a boat and sort of scatter them across the side and hope for the best. You want to put them in a protected environment for a, at least a few weeks so that predators uh, sort of get disinterested in them. And so NOAA has been testing these abalone recruitment modules with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and we're now using our own exhibits like Amber Forest to test these important methods for scientific institutions. And so each of these uh, recruitment modules that you see in Amber Forest do have juvenile abalone in them, and they are being monitored on a regular basis to make sure that this is a good design that the abalone will stay in these recruitment cages until we're ready to release them. And that's part of the next step where this partnership has gone. We are now involved in field work with NOAA going out on potential sites for outplanting the white abalone and checking to make sure that the habitat is correct and is appropriate for the newly settled juvenile white abalone. And so we have a big contingent of our own aquarium divers that participates with NOAA divers on abalone surveys where we characterize the habitat and make sure that uh, maybe there's one or two white abalone adults in that area. That's a good sign. That means that it's a great place to hopefully outplant abalone in the future. So this has been a very important project to us and one that we continue to work with NOAA today. But we also learned that we're good at growing coral. And uh, of course, this is one of my favorite exhibits here at the aquarium, only because I spent so many hours in it in the beginning, <laughs> trying to stock it and fill it with all of those tiny fragments from the hobbyists. 
And an interesting side note is this is one of the first aquariums that we asked the contractors to turn over to us because we knew that it would take a long time for the corals to really grow and fill out the exhibit. And we wanted it looking beautiful when we opened. Now, unfortunately, I don't have any really old photos of the uh, live coral exhibit, but you can see that it's changed over the years. And some of these original fragments, like this little piece here, if you track it from uh, year to year, you can see that it's grown quite a bit. And that is one of our original pieces that has been with us for 20 years. And so it's great to see this progress, but we wanted to take this level of expertise and skill to the next level, which was participating in field work. And so we became involved in 2013 with Secor International. And this is a nonprofit organization that helps with uh, reef restoration throughout the world. And they did have a Pacific site, they do have a Pacific site in Guam which we've participated in workshops to help in this reef restoration every year since then. And what we do is we will send a team and with several other aquarium representatives um, throughout the country and the world, actually. This is an international workshop. They gather together in Guam and we'll do field research where we will collect the eggs and the sperm from spawning corals this happens only once a year during a cer certain lunar cycle. And we'll take those eggs and spawn, I'm sorry, eggs and sperm, and fertilize them so that we get these little cornflake-looking things that are floating around in these specially modified tanks. And uh, just like the abalone, we will settle them onto uh, a substrate. In this case, it's these tiles. And then we will take them out into the field for outplanting. And you can see here's our assistant curator, Danny Munoz. He is uh, showing a, a, one of the tiles that we have. You can see the little corals growing on the tile. And then we take them out to the reefs in Guam. And we put the tiles out there in the hopes that we will get a nice, beautiful coral like this one. And so here again, now the aquarium is going from an entertainment and education facility to one that is actually doing active research and conservation. And this is a major shift for us. Now we are providing the bridge between scientists and the public, and we're telling these important stories. And we have been successful with our giant sea bass. We have one of the few pairs, I think the only pair, of spawning giant sea bass, certainly in any aquarium throughout the country. And thanks to the efforts of senior aquarist Nikki Lear, we have been able to raise a, the very first giant sea bass ever cultured in an aquarium setting. And this, again, is very significant because giant sea bass are a critically endangered species. And if we are able to track how to raise them in this aquarium setting, we can give this information to university researchers that are trying to restore natural populations. And so beyond, oh, and so this is a first for the Aquarium of <laughs> the Pacific. <laughs> Thank you, Nikki. Um, but beyond that, again, the partnership continues to grow. And from that, we are now involved in other research projects where university professors like Dr. Chris Lowe and Dr. Doug McCauley are working with us to further research giant sea bass in the field. And part of that research is where uh, Dr. Lowe is uh, tagging giant sea bass adults and setting out acoustic receivers. And once the giant sea bass pass by those receivers, it's picked up so that we can record where giant sea bass are going. And our team of divers are going out and helping to maintain these acoustic receivers. In addition, we're now also involved with a, a new program called Spotting Giant Sea Bass. It's a website where Recreational divers can take side view photos of giant sea bass adults and load them into an aquarium program on the website. 
where each unique spot pattern is identified. And in this way, we can identify individuals and record their location and track their movements. And again, this is really critical because we know, for example, where the young of the year giant sea bass may be living. That's, we sometimes see them off Redondo Beach. We know that the big adults are in Catalina, but we don't know what happens in between. And when you're dealing with an endangered species, one that is protected, we want to learn more about where the best places are to protect them and where they're living and what are they doing. So this is all good information and again, a way that the Aquarium of the Pacific is bridging this gap and helping scientists. And we have a very large contingent of volunteer divers. In fact, our volunteer divers, as I said in the, from the very beginning, helped us with all of our, the building and the opening of the aquarium. And some of our divers are charter divers that are, continue to be with us today. And under the leadership of our current dive safety officer, Paul DeMeo, we have been able to expand that program. And we're now actively training AAUS divers. And this is a special distinction that are, is a, a program or a certification that's associated usually with universities, where divers are specifically trained to do real science in the field. And all of our staff divers here are part of this program, but we also have a very large volunteer program that assists with projects like Reef Check and the, spotting, and the uh, Giant Sea Bass program. So we're very proud of that. We've also really expanded our sea turtle efforts. Um, Dr. Lance Adams, our veterinarian, has been very instrumental in helping with uh, sea turtle rescues. And sea turtles are normally found in warm water, very south, but we occasionally get some, especially due to the warm water lately, that drift up the coast and occasionally get what we call cold stunned, where they suddenly encounter cold water, and because they're ectothermic reptiles, they don't know how to warm up. So they need to be rescued and warmed up, or sometimes they have issues, like a hook caught in their mouth or uh, that needs to be removed. And this is where, where we really rely on Dr. Adams to help uh, recover these animals so they can be re-released in the wild. But beyond that, again, we've, come, uh, we've developed a citizen science sea turtle monitoring program, where now, because of the efforts of our volunteer group here and our education department, we are able to track a local sea turtle population in the San Gabriel River. And through their efforts, we've discovered that it's not just a transient place for the sea turtles to come during the winter and hang out by the warm water of the power plants, but that we actually have a resident population. And this is, and the, the population on the San Gabriel River is the northernmost sea turtle population along our coast. So that's pretty cool. And that's something that the Aquarium of the Pacific is a first at. I didn't put a first here on this one, but you get the idea. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Adams also was very instrumental in providing the first zebra shark that was artificially in, from an artificial insemination procedure. This is a major milestone because zebra sharks are very popular in aquariums. They make great ambassador animals and great uh, exhibit animals. And so by uh, Dr. Adams' efforts, research, and our team of husbandry folks, we have been able to perfect this method and produce zebra sharks through artificial insemination. Again, achieving that goal of a sustainable collection and providing animals for other institutions. This is a first for the Aquarium <laughs> of the Pacific. <laughs> And there are so many other great projects we've done. With birds, you know, we're involved in the Saipan Aviafauna Conservation Project, where we go to Saipan, which is in Micronesia, and help the, uh, restore natural populations of, world, of birds that are being uh, threatened due to the presence of brown tree snakes, for example. We also have done great things with our um, lorikeet 
Chick, uh, uh, lorikeet forest, we have the largest, most uh, abundant lorikeet population in the entire country. Uh, we, have, uh, we were the first to use iPads as a penguin enrichment tool, which is very exciting. We've done fantastic things with our alcid collection and helping to contribute to the species survival plan there. And we're working with the Guam kingfisher to try to restore those endanger, that endangered species as well. So over the years, we've really ramped up all of our efforts here at the aquarium, but it doesn't just stop with the husbandry folks. Well, it, uh, sorry, it doesn't just stop with the animals. We also have, we are also doing great work in our water quality lab, for example, where our lab manager, Karen Tuttle and her team have been working with medications such as Praziquantel, which is commonly used throughout aquariums, to treat certain parasites. And Karen is finding very interesting things about this particular medication and how best to use it so we don't waste it. It's a very expensive treatment and very uh, widely used a lot throughout many aquariums. So her work has been very instrumental in helping other aquariums be effective and cost effective at uh, their medications as well. And then, of course, we use the latest technology. John loves technology, our vice president of operations, and he's always searching for the latest gadget. Here he is showing off a, a, a CO2 analyzer, which helps us measure the CO2 in the air so we know how it affects the pH of our aquariums. But of course, Karen keeps him on his toes, and she comes up with the next latest version of the CO2 analyzer. But the point here is that we do use technology to help us advance our exhibits, our programs, and keep us cutting edge and the world-class aquarium that we truly are. And so in closing, I think you know, the aquarium, I consider our, our aquarium to be the finest aquarium in the world, of course. Um, and it is truly world-class because we do create amazing exhibits and we are telling the important stories. We have a very long record of industry firsts and we are sustainable. And that's not just due to the husbandry team, but the entire team here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. And it's amazing to have watched this history and be part of this history for so long, and I, in the end, I think I've come up with maybe a rough draft for the recipe of success for research and conservation achievements. And I think it, that's that you start with an amazing team, you identify your strengths and your skills, you seek opportunities for growth and improvement and funding, you look ahead you, you watch the path that you're on, the direction that you're going, and you make sure that it aligns with your mission. And then you spread the word, whether it be through social media or public relations or just simply word of mouth about the great things that the Aquarium of the Pacific is doing. And so as we face this next chapter of Pacific Visions and opening that beautiful new facility, we will be able to tell these important stories on an even greater scale. And I really look forward to being part of that future and working with the team to develop those future plans. But believe me, I'll be back in 20 years to hear your lecture about our major <laughs> achievements. Thank you very much. Sandy, thank you for a great talk and for 20 years of leadership you know, I want to underscore, though, it all comes down to having the right team. And we have a remarkable staff. Probably everybody in the auditorium knows this, but maybe people watching remotely don't know that we have a unified staff. That is, the volunteers and the paid employees are all on the same staff. Same rules, same uniforms. I think that was the first. Uh, if, if it wasn't the first, it was, it was very early on, and it has made an awful lot of difference. 
The other one, I'm disappointed you didn't have up there. The, we were the first aquarium ever to give a sawfish a nose job. Oh, that's right. See, I knew I forgot some, right? That's very true. Anyway, all right, who has a question or a comment? And uh, I've got a microphone, and Linda has one in the back. All right, go ahead. I want to thank you for your, the presentation you had. It was quite informative, especially towards the end, um, for people to know all the other things you're doing in terms of research and trying to find safe habitats for um, the different um, species that you mentioned. When you had the idea of having the touch exhibit, was there ever concern about humans transferring organisms with their hands into the water that would affect the different species that they would be touching? And is there any type of protection that you have to put in the water? I was kind of wondering about that. No, that's Thank a you. great question. Uh, we prefer that our guests wash their hands before touching the animals, of course. And thus, that's why we provide the hand sanitizers and the wash stations as much as possible. But there really isn't anything that can be transferred from the human to the aquatic animals that they're touching. So um, if anything, we are concerned and we do take precautions about the other way around. If there are ever touch animals that carry uh, diseases, zoonotic diseases they're called, where there's a potential for that, we always make sure that we're abiding by the standards and the rules for those program animals. So that's a very important point. Mm -hmm. Sandy, what's the favorite part of your job? What do you like to do best? Oh man, well I think the favorite part for my experience here at the aquarium is always watching the guests and seeing how delighted they are to, um, to, to share in all of these creations that we have here at the aquarium. It's really hard to say. I, I love thinking about the future and considering our resources, resources and trying to develop our team for the next big step. But I think always for me it goes back to working with the animals. Whenever I can hold a little penguin chick in my hand, I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. It's really amazing just to, to be able to um, have those close interactions with all of these amazing creatures is, is definitely the highlight for me. Other questions or comments? Raise your hand. We'll bring you a microphone. Um, I just have two quick ones. Uh, how often would a healthy sea otter need to have uh, blood drawn? And was the use of an iPad with a um, penguin like serendipitous, or uh, uh, was there, you know, uh, a scientific rationale behind that? Well, I'll answer your first question. Uh, we typically do annual exams, just as a human would do, to, to check our animals and make sure they're healthy. So the blood draw would be on a standard basis once a year. And then for the iPad question, I'm going to turn it over to Sarah, because she's right here, our penguin expert. <laughs> and she knows how that all developed. So when we first got our penguins, we needed to find enrichment for them. And that's something that stimulates their mental, stimulates them mentally, physically, or just helps us out with their health care. And there was a really interesting game called Games for Cats, and I used it with my cats. And they were very intent on following the mouse or the butterfly or the laser pointer that was on there. So I just kind of wondered if the penguins would like it too. And even if they could register seeing that on the screen, and they could. I asked if I could use that as enrichment, and it happened to work. But it kind of distracts the birds, because when they're playing with that iPad, I can kind of touch their flippers, their feet, and do kind of a little general exam, maybe get their weight or something like that. So it's more so for enrichment. It, it isn't anything that, that's serious or anything like that. It's more so for fun. And Sarah, I'm assuming you're controlling the number of hours that our penguins are doing. So, so they won't have the same attention deficit disorder that some young people have, right? Exactly, and we change out their enrichment too. So right, I good. don't give them the iPad every day. It's, it's every couple weeks or something like that. But, but it, it is pretty fun to watch them hit the mouse or the butterfly. But we do need to make one for penguins. Mm, there's an idea. Other questions or comments? 
Then, you know, the other thing, I want to come back, you know, teams. You mentioned that. And not all institutions are good collaborators. Not all teams work well together. And I think we have a wonderful team, and this institution is a great collaborator because people are unselfish with their ideas, their talents, and their skills. So I would like us to give a big round of applause to the remarkable staff that this aquarium has. And the next lecture will be on September 13th. Uh, Andy Policano, who was the dean of the business school at UC Irvine, he retired from there. He's had extensive experience in at least three public universities. Before UC Irvine, he was at the University of Wisconsin. Before that, he was at Stony Brook. And he's going to talk about uh, the future of public education. If, if, you have, if you're a parent or a grandparent or if you have a relative getting ready to go to college, Adina, he has a lot to say. Because, you know, there's no such thing anymore as a public university. It used to be, when I was going, going to college, that public universities got most of their support from the state. That's no longer true. They don't, they don't even get 50% of their support. So the whole model of public education is changing. And Andy Policano is an expert on that. He's written at least two books. So please join us. And again, thank you for a wonderful lecture.